soy fiesta. Welcome to the Dead Format, episode 32. My name is Ian McEwen, and I'm joined tonight by my co-host and Patriots fan, Tom Smiley. And we're here to talk about Legacy. After 32 episodes, we're still here. Yeah, barely, I'd say. It's It's been quite a long time since we played any Legacy. <clears throat> I, I don't know about that. Really? Would you play? No. Oh. But they don't know that. That's what I was trying to say. Our listeners, <laughs> our listeners don't know that. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know, man. I feel like I feel like we're the, the only ones keeping legacy alive at this point. Is is just the like the way it feels to me. And I'm sure that's just like my warped perception from doing this podcast, but it feels like uh there was some post about like somebody was looking for podcasts or something like that. And they were like, I feel like there's more legacy podcasters and legacy players at this point. And something about that felt kind of true to me. Well, we kind of hit a lull in the big events. And coming up soon, we have a few that bridge right into each other. The SCG in Syracuse, which we'll both be at. The Leaving a Legacy tournament that's coming up in the beginning of April. And then in the middle end of April, we have Grand Prix Niagara. So... Is a pretty good chunk of legacy coming up, but yeah. I know I've been I've been playing a little bit more modern online to get ready for Toronto, where I'm headed this weekend. Nice. What's your uh, deck of choice? Are you gonna stick with the hexproof? No, I I'm probably gonna play mono red phoenix. It's what I've been playing online, and we'll uh, we'll see what happens. But that's what I'm I'm penciled in for right now. I want to thank gaming etc. because right before we started recording. I called to see if they had Phoenixes available, and they, they only had a limited supply, and there was no way that I was going to get there tonight. So I was able to pay for them, and then I'm going to go pick them up tomorrow. So thank you to Michelle and her awesome staff over at Gaming Etc. That's great. Dude, so so going to Syracuse, one of my like MOs with this trip, and what, one of the reasons I feel like I absolutely have to go, and even if my flight gets delayed and I can't play in the tournament, I'm still going to go is just to to sell a lot of my like new bordered cards, I feel like. I don't know, are you feeling any of this pressure right now? To sell new cards? Yeah, it's, well, just to, to sell paper cards in general. Well, no. Okay. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that if I was trying to play the market, there's obviously always cards that you could do better selling at the moment, but I'm sort of sitting on my collection right now because I don't have the time to manage it. Yeah. And I have a lot of other stuff going on that needs my attention more than trying to maximize the value of the cards I have. So I'm not I'm not too worried about it. They're just sort of sitting on the back burner for now. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like uh I don't know, man. The money doesn't really matter, I guess, but it's more like uh just how bad it would feel if they just Okay. 
it's something that's, it's something that definitely worries me like with uh all the the seemingly like nonstop negative news lately you know like the mythic invitational yeah well like the no coverage for toronto now apparently well i thought that channel fireball was going to do text coverage yeah text coverage but no video coverage i guess for like a modern grand prix we we talked about how wizards was going to trans transition to digital and they have their event coming up at pax that i don't want to talk too much about but there are definitely some people that i feel bad for some people that put in a bunch of time and effort to end up gold but not top 32 and it it just kind of sucks for a lot of those people but anyway we have a lot to actually talk about tonight we had some patron recommendations of single car discussions to talk about we had a star city that had a lot of exciting things happen in legacy for both the classic and the team main event so let's let's kick it off go for it so in our patron topic request we had two cards that actually tie together quite a bit that our patrons wanted us to talk about casting where we both have quite a bit of experience with them and for newer legacy players this is probably going to help you out immensely not only playing your own deck if these cards are in it but trying to figure out how to play against them and for intermediate and advanced players there's some corner cases that we're going to talk about but a lot of this you probably already know because the two cards we're going to talk about tonight are brainstorm and days and those were two overwhelmingly requested cards when we asked this question in our discord and by that i mean one person asked about each of them (laughs) okay so let's start with days because i think brainstorm has a little bit more finesse to play with yeah brainstorm could be five episodes long if we let it right it could be i think we can we can narrow down quite a bit of we can narrow it down quite a bit, but let's let's start with days because I feel like days is the easiest. Yes, one. yeah. Let's start off with first the decks that want to play days, their sort of makeup and cards that they pair with days to make it more effective. So, all right. Do you want to start like the the top level theory? I guess of of like tempo decks like. You don't want to be playing days in a deck where you don't have a lot of turn one plays. You you want to be committing to the board on turn one in any days deck, really. Uh, I mean, sometimes you'll see people splash days to be Q in combo decks, like uh, Ant or Sneak and Show, but traditionally it's a Delver card, right? It's a one mana threats. There's no more uh, Death Rite Shaman, but... You, you really just you need to be committing to the board. You need to be having a deck that's mostly ones and twos. Mostly ones, but a few twos and some threes are acceptable. But really what you want to be doing is just keeping the game stalled in, in that that early state. And it it's almost like getting free mana, right? Because you can force spike 
without actually having to spend any mana, and all that you're giving up is a land drop. So, I think that just to just to sort of wrap that together, you rarely see days played without wasteland. Like you said, sometimes you see it in Ant, which I'm not sure if that's ever correct, or sometimes Sneak and Show or Miracles just to get people. But generally, you want to play days in a deck that wants to keep the game in a low mana environment so its spells can function more effectively. Yeah, and yeah, definitely Wasteland is a great point. I, I don't think... Yeah, I really don't think that there's any deck that would play Days without Wasteland, right? I I had a hard time coming up with any. I'm sure that there are some corner cases where that's true, but generally Days is paired with, paired with Wasteland and cheap threats. So... The idea behind playing a Daze deck is that Daze is tremendously positive when you have the advantage on board and your opponents have to answer your threats. So you can tap out to play a threat and protect it with Daze. You can overwhelmingly gain tempo advantages by getting a 2 or 3 mana spell with a Daze because you've effectively traded one of your land drops for your opponent spending three mana. And I don't want to get into too much of effective effective use of mana theory, but I think there was an article by AJ a really long time ago. Adrian Sullivan? No, no, no. Uh, AJ Soccer. Oh, okay. That talked about how your early effective use of mana in the early turns or like as the game curves through can provide a tremendous advantage. I I don't really want to link the article because it's, it's quite old, but the idea was that utilizing your mana effectively in the early turns gains you a huge advantage in the game. And in legacy, you see that quite a bit. Yeah, absolutely. I've, I mean, we, we kind of get farther from this every year, but in like, classic magic i would say like 95 96 some of the first like real strategy articles were really highlighting how the person who's able to use the most mana over the course of a match is the winner a huge percentage of the time and that's really that's the game that days is playing so what are some corner cases that you can talk about that are a little bit more advance not just the all right days allows you to tap out and protect your threat it allows you to trade on mana use in the early game what what are some situations that you can think of where a less experienced player might be able to utilize days a little bit more effectively i don't know like there's a lot of tricks you can do is that what you're trying to get into or yeah, like what? What's one that you can think of off the top of your head that people might not might not understand? All right, so like if you're in a Delver mirror, say, and you only have one, maybe two lands, but like what? You know, one Trop, one Volk, something along those lines, and your opponent goes to waste you off a color. 
you can pick a fight right there. Like if they let's say that they have a Delver or a young Pyromancer in play, you can go to bolt it. And if they choose to fight over that creature, like you know, they, they try to pierce your bolt because you don't have two mana up anymore, you can daze to protect your land. So even if uh even if ultimately, you know, they just have to tap out, you still were able to protect that land from being destroyed by the wasteland maybe you needed that red source right or that green source for your threats in your deck and you're able to protect your lands in that way another thing you can do then if you actually didn't need the land is later in the game when you could pay for days with mana you can actually just pick up the land to shuffle it back into your deck so it's kind of one and the same if you shuffle the days back in your deck or the land back in your deck but a lot of times you wind up in these situations where you have dead fetch lands, like really late in the game in a Delver Mirror, because so, you know some of your lands have been wasted, and you've fetched out your other sources, so you end up with more fetch lands in play or in your hand than you even have lands for in your deck. So to get like a fetch land live again, you can shuffle an actual land back into your deck. Yeah, to piggyback off of your wasteland uh or picking a fight so you can daze your land back that's being targeted by a wasteland mm -hmm. there are lots of positive things that you can do with timing with instigating wasteland fights with spells on the stack yep to where if for some reason you're sort of in the mid game and you and your opponent both have a wasteland in play and they put a spell on the stack you can instigate that fight by either wastelanding their duels wastelanding their wasteland so they try to aim it back at you where you can daze or sometimes if your opponents don't end up playing around it you can actually wasteland fetch lands so let's say your opponent has four land in play one of them being a fetch land and they try to cast a true name nemesis you can wasteland their fetch land, and in response to them cracking it, you can daze the spell. Something that will actually allow you to counter that where you might not have been able to before. Ignoring yeah, the fact that like maybe you should have wastelanded before they, they had their main phase, but a lot of the times wastelanding and playing daze in response to fetch lands by instigating something on the stack ends up ends up making days a more effective card yeah and that's one that i've definitely had to learn the hard way i've been gotten by that a few times where you just go to resolve your threat against the days deck not even thinking about how you still have a fetch land in play right and then they get you with the days so and this this definitely applies more back more to times back in the day when rug delver was around but Playing days in a stifle and wasteland deck makes makes for some very interesting timing rules with the stack. So it's it's magic that not a ton of people or not all people who play Legacy nowadays experienced. And playing playing around a days stifle deck a lot of the times is is very difficult. Yeah. It does definitely take some skill, and there's also an element of helplessness when you're playing against them. I feel like 
it definitely does take skill. I'm not going to say that it doesn't, but it also sometimes you can just get get fucked. Basically, like you know, you you kept a two lander, you you have to keep a two lander, right? And you you can't play around stifle. You can't afford to play around stifle, right? Like you don't know if you're going to hit another land off the top, or you're just going to just basically do nothing for a turn. So the the degree to which you can actually play around these cards i think is overstated sometimes but if you have the ability to play around them knowing how is is very useful all right so here's the actual question that we were asked in our discord but specifically these were the three or four things that we we were asked to discuss so first when is it right to daze a cantrip. Do you want? Are you going to read them all right now, or do you want to do them? No, time? let's just let's let's answer this one first, and then we'll go on. <sighs> yeah, this is a tough one. So, <sighs> I generally don't daze cantrips unless they've missed land drops, like. Not just they haven't played a land yet this turn, but they've actually missed a land drop. Like you're playing against something like Miracles and they don't play a land on turn three and then turn four they try to ponder or you know, something like that. That would that would certainly be a time that I dazed uh the cantrip. Uh against Storm. If it's like a, a game winning like you know, they've, they've tried going off and now they're trying to find their tendrils with a ponder. Obviously, you daze that. But in general, like early on in the turns, I would never try to daze them because you can just be adding to the storm count and turning on their kills, right? So, I don't know. Like, against Sneak and Shell, I've, I've seen people who are more aggressive with daze and cantrips, but that's never been me. So, I don't know. How do you feel about it? I feel the exact same way that you do. Other, like, aside from corner cases, like, your opponent is playing sneak and show after sideboard and they have Bazaju in play. Oh, and yeah, you yep. know they're ripping off the top and dazing their cantrip will put them low enough on mana to where they can't resolve their show and tell. You, you might fire it off right there. Yeah, it's good. I, yeah, I generally, I'm not dazing cantrips unless they've missed a land drop or... Or I'm on the play and I have a threat in hand. Maybe I have two dazes and I have like two or three wastelands. Like you always have those games right. where you know that you're going to be able to set up to just cheese your opponent. And a lot of those times getting, getting more use out of your dazes, especially with multiples, can make sense. So, they're corner cases, but generally I'm not dazing cantrips unless unless I know that I have access to another daze and probably quite a bit of other disruption. This is going to be kind of hard to explain. I might botch it because I didn't really think about this, but there's also this time in a wasteland mirror where you can use daze to disguise the fact that you're actually really just fucked if you get wastelanded. Like, if you start out, let's say, this is when I was playing that uh, 
Bant Stoneblade deck, so I had all the mana dorks. But if you start out, let's say, like, Trop, Deathrite, and then, you know, the opponent's doing whatever they're doing. Let's say that, you know, they go to Swords, your Deathrite, and you daze. Uh, I don't know why they're playing Swords in a Wasteland deck, so I've already fucked this up, but... No, so the, the Bant, if you were playing the Bant Mirror, right? Yeah, yeah, sure. And Blue-White Delver plays Swords in a Wasteland deck. Yeah, that's true. So and anyway, death and taxes. Yeah, death and taxes is one where I would definitely be siding those out. But I, I definitely have been in that situation game one. So basically, you can disguise the fact that you only have one land if you have like a two or three days draw by just being very aggressive with your dazes. Hopefully, you have a mana dork out so you can sort of not fall really behind in terms of committing to the board. So it can kind of look like you're just being, you know, maybe your day's flooded or you're just being a little bit reckless with your dazes, but really you just, you're just trying not to get wastelanded or you're just really fucked. Right. So I completely agree with you on that. Again, I play magic kind of intuitively and a lot of the time I can't explain my reasonings for lines. Yeah. I just, it's how I would play from that spot. And I have a hard time explaining it to other people, but I very rarely daze cantrips unless I have a lot of extra information. Yeah, exactly. All right. So here's the next one. Do wait, hold on wait, before, before we leave this, do you ever like your opponent casts a spell? Let's say it's a cantrip and you could potentially daze. Do you ever like, touch your land and potentially even flip your land over and then flip it back over and decide not to daze only if i don't have days okay Some, sometimes sometimes i will pick up my opening hand and let's say i was playing the the bant deck sometimes i might keep like a three lander and in my mind i pick a land that i know is going to be my third land drop and i play the whole game like it's a daze yeah so I will pause when my component cast spells where days might be legitimate. If it's a spell where like I would 100% daze it, then the, the jig is up and I just sort of let it go. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the times in the early turns, I will always play like I have it unless I have it. And then I'll be thinking about what I would daze before the spell gets played. Because you never want to be caught in that spot where you're thinking about it and it gives something away, you kind of want to mask the reads to your opponent. And I know yeah. that sounds like weird because really you're probably just better off just making the right play. But at higher levels, that actually matters. And I, I, I hate to say it, but it does. Oh, it certainly does. And one, one of the things that I do is sort of how much attention I'm play, paying to my hand. Sometimes during my opponent's turn, I'll just sort of have my hands in like a like a V shape with the cards face down on the table, like sort of not paying attention, not looking at my cards actively. Yeah, and then sometimes you have your hand directly over your library in the middle of your playmat <laughs> where people literally can't turn because it seems like you're going to fucking draw half your deck. Let me tell you, I like this has never been an issue when we have played... But that fucking drives me crazy watching you play other people. Like, 
Why have we ever played? building a fort with his fucking library <laughs> in his hand? You know what I'm saying? I know. Uh, you gotta, you know, you gotta get people's attention. But when have we ever, <laughs> when have we ever played Magic? Uh, have we actually actually ever played a sanctioned match? I don't think so. Damn. I guess we haven't. The only time I can think that we ever played is when I took like three in a row off of you when you were testing Storm and I was playing Bant, and then you went back to Bant. Yes. Oh well, that I just I wanted to see how the Storm matchup was. Yeah. Yeah, right. But you yeah. know what? You're your own one against my family. <laughs> That's true. All right. So you want to move on to the next one? Uh, sure. Okay. Do you daze a threat if you don't have a threat on board knowing it sets you back a turn? So the way that I sort of look at this question is it's an even board and your opponent is playing a threat. Do you daze it? Do you want to take this one or you want to let me go in? Well, I mean, it totally depends on if you're the context. You have removal, right? Right. Well, like, okay, so obviously if you have a spell in your hand that removes that threat, I think that you don't daze. Like, that's not what we're talking about. And obviously, if this threat is game-ending, like if it's a show-and-tell or a reanimate or uh, or animate dead, like, you are dazing it. It doesn't matter if the game if the game is going to end, you are going to daze it. So I take this as more of like you're in the early turns, you don't have a removal spell, and you have the opportunity to daze a whatever. Uh, it could be a Liliana, it could be a Delver, it could be a just whatever. And that's so context dependent because you yeah. should know what your deck has an easy time equalizing and dealing with versus what you're going to have a difficulty with, right? Exactly. Like what you have multiple answers for. In general, I would say you know, if it's a Delver then no, if it's if it's something like a young pyromancer where it's going to snowball then yeah, you probably have to go for it. And it depends too if you have like wastelands in your hand where you can you know, sometimes it might not feel like it, but you can fall really far behind in the first two turns in that scenario. If you, like, let's say that you whiffed on a ponder and had to shuffle and then drew another land, and now you have, like, you know, triple fetch land, wasteland, lightning bolt, blah, blah, blah you know, force of will. Like, a, a total trash hand. It just it hasn't worked out for you. And they're, you know, casting a young pyromancer at that point. You kind of just have to daze there, and sometimes you you also just have to like fire off a wasteland there and just hope to get lucky that you can draw the game out like three more turns, so that your card advantage will end up being relevant rather than just the fact that you have no threats. You just get run over. Yeah, and obviously that depends on the context of your hand, right? Because like you can be in that position where your opponent's playing a threat. And you might have the opportunity to daze, but your hand is built of higher curve cards, like threes and fours, where if you daze and then get wastelanded on the next turn, you're just super far behind, regardless of what happens. And it it really is impossible to answer this question, except to say, you know the threats you are going to daze definitely. You don't have to ask that question about the ones where you're just going to lose if they resolve. 
So it's it's a judgment call with knowing what your deck is matched up well to handle and figuring out what your outs are and doing sort of an on-the-fly calculation. That's the that's sort of the best way I could wrap that up. I think one of the most interesting scenarios here is let's say you go turn one Delver and your opponent goes Ancient Tomb Chalice and your hand at this point is land land you know let's say wasteland wasteland days force of will do you force the chalice or do you daze it wait if if you're you only playing have, the you only legacy have, eldrazi matchup uh i was gonna say the mono red but yeah the eldrazi oh mono red the okay the eldrazi aggro it could be as well. uh, i that's that's such a tough call right if your hand is double wasteland and you have the force and the days and you played your delver on turn one yep then you don't have another blue card the days is your only blue card right so it's just it's just wasteland wasteland force days and then one other card whatever it is yeah i mean sometimes you just let that resolve and you're like all right i'm playing protect the queen yeah yeah that's true too and i'm gonna wasteland them and then i'm probably going to try to wasteland them again and we'll see what happens so if I'm if I'm on the play and I'm playing like your noble rug deck, and I went Delver with that hand and they played Tomb Chalice, I'm actually I'm actually thinking there's a there's a chance I just I let this resolve. Uh, probably, probably, I'm going to daze it, and if they spirit guide, then you wasteland them and then you hope you draw a blue card for that force. And you're still playing the Protect the Queen game because there aren't a ton of cards that are going to matter. And I, I daze for exactly that reason you just said. But okay. I do think that there is a... Especially if it's a Blood Moon, that, that then you definitely probably force in that situation. But yeah, it's interesting. I, I've been in that situation plenty of times and thought about the particulars of it and usually wind up dazing. But Okay, so... The next one is, do you keep it in against fair decks on the draw? Yeah, I've, I've never, I've almost never boarded out four dazes. The only time that I've boarded out four dazes is against Aether Vile decks. I'm always keeping at least one daze. I would say on the draw against fair non-Wasteland decks, I'm probably coming in with two to one to two, and against wasteland decks, usually two to three. But it, it's so much of it is dependent, right? It's, it depends on the context of your deck, the context of their deck, whether you're keeping your mana dorks in or siding them out, how susceptible they are to wastelands. There's, you know, what cards you have to bring in, how strong they are, because days is. When you think of, of like two fair decks facing off against each other, you're thinking that they're both trying to get bigger, right? And I'm coming at this from the context of the Noble Rug deck, just because that's what I've been thinking about the most in the past few months. So I'm trying to actually still get under them, even though we're both trying to get bigger in the sideboarding. 
So that's why I'm keeping my daisies. And I think that you actually, in our sideboard plans, were uh, more likely to ditch the daisies, right, when we were both playing Bant? Yeah, on the draw, I was much more likely to side out three or four. But again, this is the thing. The more likely your opponent is to know what your sideboard plan is, the more likely they're not going to play around days in a game where you're on the draw. So keeping in a one of days is definitely something that I have done. And you always sort of, or you always used to, sort of hear this argument from Rug Delver players where the Rug Delver player that was on the draw got their opponent with a daze. And their, their opponent who was on the play was just like, you're such a bad player. You're never supposed to keep that in. And it just won them the game. Yeah, that's or, just wrong. Or you're, I play the Delver on turn one. You're never supposed to wasteland me when they played their one land into their Delver that was on board. So I, I feel like keeping in a majority of your dazes on the draw in a fair matchup probably isn't correct. But trimming and making your opponent play honest where you're diversifying what your counters are is definitely something that you can do. So I have I have done both where I've cut all of them, where I understood that the early turns aren't going to matter as much, so days just sort of loses some of its oomph, and understood that the first returns of certain matchups it, it really, you just need interaction to where I have kept all of my dazes on the draw. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's, it's very well put. And the reason I think that you have to board out some of them is just the risk of drawing multiples on the draw. It's, it can just be totally dead at that point. Absolutely. So hopefully we had a good discussion about days. I feel like Days is the much easier card to talk about because now we're going to talk about the card that is really the the cornerstone of Legacy. And understanding how to cast this card for all in all of the different ways that you can cast it just makes you a better Legacy player. All right, so Ian, I'm going to throw it over to you. You talk about Brainstorm for half an hour. I'm going to hang out. (laughs) Brainstorm should be banned. It's a blight on the format. Makes everything uh, blue, true name, ape deck, something. something. Get that that tusk out Uh, of your mouth. (laughs) And let's let's have a real discussion now. Yeah, I don't understand. Uh, The the one thing that I kind of wish, this is kind of weird, but... Could you imagine if Brainstorm ca- cost Phyrexian mana? Or l- let's say it was like a, a rainbow mana. Like you could play B- Brainstorm in any color deck. Don't you just think that the game would just be better at that point? Or let's say that it was like a, a blue-green or a, a blue-white or something. like Basically that some other color had access to Brainstorm. Because the effect that Brainstorm has on games and, you know on the format as a whole, because this is the four brainstorm format, but really on games is just, it makes more playable games, right? It smooths everything out with regard to 
finding the right number of lands, finding the right number of threats, finding the right number of, you know, whatever it is you're looking for, being able to find cyborg cards, being able to shuffle away dead cards in game ones. Like when you're playing a brainstorm mirror, the the chance that you play a non-game is so much lower than when you're playing against these all-in or linear decks. And I know not everybody enjoys that aspect of the game, right? But I feel like it is kind of unfortunate that you have to play blue to play anything like Brainstorm because there's not really anything else like Brainstorm. The closest things that I can think of are like Faithless Looting and to a degree, I guess, like Sylvan Library or Green Sun Zenith, but they're not really the same at all. Yeah, I don't want to get too hung up on a hypothetical because obviously yeah. that would that would completely change the format. And I mean, all those reasons that you talked about were one of the were were the reasons of Blue's dominance and legacy. Yeah. Obviously, Force of Will being a check on super fast combo is is something that contributes to it too. But it's also why now we're sort of seeing a dichotomy between the decks and legacy where their brainstorm decks or their decks attacking brainstorm like chalice prison decks and i i think that trying to answer the question of what if everybody could play brainstorm is just it's not something that we want to talk about because we could talk about it for too long and it's not going to help anybody well i feel like that's like the top level of this conversation though right and i I do think you're right that it, it has devolved into decks that beat brainstorm and decks that play brainstorm to to a large degree and i'm not sure that that's that's a great place to be right right but i mean none of that none of that has anything to do with what if brainstorm was mana was was multicolored right yeah all right so what was the question talk about brainstorm it was literally i would like you and tom to talk about brainstorm the card got brought up in a conversation of there has been so much written and so much talked about how to cast this card talk about it run it down and i don't think we're gonna say anything new but i'd I'd like to give it a go i was playing ice age uh like 93 95 on wednesday night at movies uh actually i'm sorry this was the week before before we were officially playing with Ice Age at Moogies, and I was just playing my Ice Age deck against our friend Chris Dorico, and I he didn't realize that I was playing Ice Age cards. He just thought I was playing regular 93 94, and I cast a Brainstorm, and he's like, what the fuck? And he, he got really upset. He's like, dude, I don't want to be playing against Brainstorm. Like, people really just hate this card. They have, like, such a, a visceral reaction to it. And I'm like, dude, I'm not playing Lantax. Like, this isn't even a good card, really. Like, I, I'm not playing four of them. I'm I'm just seeing how good it is in this deck with like one demonic tutor, you know whether it's even worth playing this card or not. But people just hate playing against the card because they've had so many bad experiences. Of I think a lot of it also is playing against new players, or God forbid, players who are trying to stall out the game and take forever with their brainstorm. So you know, like I'm gonna put these two cards back. No, I'll look at my hand and I'll pick out the three cards I want to keep, and then I'll pick one back up. You know that fucking brutal situation that you get into, where you're just like, my god, I I never want to play Legacy again. Yeah, that's my brainstorm story. 
Okay, I I have never experienced anything like that. Like, obviously, the playing against an opponent that doesn't know how to brainstorm quickly is frustrating. But I've I've never seen somebody get visibly upset and frustrated at the game when their opponent casts a brainstorm. Yeah, it is pretty rare that Chris definitely does, and he does it in Legacy too. But that's just him, I guess. Yeah, I guess that Legacy might not be your format if you're going to tilt when your opponent casts a fucking brainstorm. <laughs> I don't know. I apologize if I offended anybody there. But let's let's talk about how it works. Because there are there are so many people that use their brainstorm not to its fullest potential. And there are definitely times when it's correct to not use it to its fullest potential. Like there are times when it's correct to cast it on your end step. Or in response to your opponent's spell, which generally you don't want to do early in the game when you don't have a fetch land available. But sometimes you just, you need to cast your brainstorm as an emergency button. That you're just not going to have time to cast it for full value later. So, let's, let's just talk about the highest end of brainstorm. How is a brainstorm perfect? Go through... Go through the situations where you cast a brainstorm and it was absolutely perfect. So your opponent leads off with a cabal therapy. And you just snap off resolves immediately. Even though you have a blue in play. And they figure you don't have a brainstorm because you didn't cast it. So they say force of will and they see your hand and it has a brainstorm in it. So you got them. So it's already been a good brainstorm. Like you already know this is a lucky brainstorm. So then you go to your second turn and I don't know where this story's going really. Uh, in general, you should just be holding your brainstorms as long as you can, right? Well, I, I wouldn't say hold them as long as you can. I think that's wrong. I think that to cast a perfect brainstorm, you, one, need to know what you're looking for. Yep. Two, have two bad cards in your hand already that you want to get rid of. Well, you need to know enough about the game to know that, that they're bad cards, right? Right. Obviously, you're, you're not going to know... Well, a lot of the times you can, right? Let's say that you're playing Blue-White Delver. It's a game one. And your opponent you know is playing Storm from the first few turns. Your Swords to Plowshares are bad cards, and yeah. you know that. So And like a Spell Snare against Sneak and Show, right? But the, those situations, I guess in game one, they're more common, right? But... Right, like obviously. And in your game ones... If you're casting a Brainstorm without cards you want to get rid of, you're not getting full value from it. Yep. Now, usually, when you're playing Brainstorm, you're also pairing it with some other cantrips. So, in the early turns, you kind of want to churn through your Pronders and Preordains to hit your land drops. And set up your draws to know what you want with your Brainstorm for when you actually set it up and cast it. So, to, in my mind, to have a perfect brainstorm, you need to, one, have two cards you want to get rid of already, 
have a way to shuffle your library or clear those cards and know what you are digging for. And unless you can say yes to all three of those, a lot of the times it's better to hold your brainstorm. Now, there are some matchups where you know you need to put a clock on immediately. And you might not have the luxury of the time to wait till you have two bad cards in your hand. So on your turn two with a fetch land, you might be brainstorming for that Delver so you can get a clock on your opponent. And the, the amount of time you have in a game determines how long you can wait on your brainstorm, for sure. But with newer players... Like, I I had somebody from my D&D group over who showed up early and wanted to play some Legacy. And I think we were playing the Miracles versus Jeskai Delver matchup. And my opponent was on Miracles and just played a Brainstorm on turn, on turn one. And I, like, tried to politely say, you should just never do that. Like, regardless of what is going on in your hand, if you were in that position, you pro you probably should have mulliganed. But their logic was, I just, I needed to hit another land. That was my only land. Oh, and yeah. in, in my mind, that's a, that's a common fallacy that a lot of people make. Yeah. That's not helping you. Right. You can dig a card deeper on your next turn. You can give yourself another chance to hit a land drop. You can always make that turn to don't make your land drop cast brainstorm play as bait for your opponent when you might be you you might want to get rid of that brainstorm to give yourself an opportunity to hit an extra land drop while your opponent dazes it. That's something that definitely comes up quite a bit. But I I think that there are there are a lot of people that could wait longer on their brainstorms and having the patience to wait until you're guaranteed to have a good brainstorm, regardless of what three cards you draw, separates the, the good players from the people who are really good. What cases is it okay to cast a brainstorm, or, or sorry, in what cases is it correct to cast a brainstorm where the cases that we talked about before just don't don't hold up? Well, I mean, when your opponent has has like discard spells in their deck in general, that can be a consideration for the timing and uses of your brainstorms because you can disguise what you actually have. You can hide cards from targeted or random discard like him to Turok. You know, you can sort of use it to to sculpt your proactive plan rather than shuffling away cards, protecting cards, and letting other cards get taken by thought seizes. Or if it's a duress, you you know, you put your cards back and keep all the creatures in your hand and let them see your creatures, you know. But then there's this other aspect of like, are they clearing the way to try to resolve the spell? And then you're going to get fucked because you put your counter magic back on top of your deck. So the the lines with Brainstorm become this whole other thing when your opponent's playing a discard combo deck. 
I agree. And actually, Jonathan Sukenik talked about this on a podcast when I think it was Eternal Dirtles when he top aided the first open after the banning or one of his friends top aided or came close to top aiding an open after the banning where he talked about how thought scour interacting with opponents brainstorms in response to thought seizes was just an all-star way to play thought scour where people would use their brainstorms to counteract discard <laughs> and then get their their good cards just got off of the top of their deck as a cantrip and obviously brainstorm interacts favorably against discard unless you're playing against something like storm where they're leading off with that duress and if you brainstorm your flush to storm back on top you're just you're effed no matter what happens yeah if you only have you know that if you have that one piece of interaction then you kind of have to hold it and let them either take your fluster storm or your brainstorm depending on their hand and if they take the fluster storm then you have to hope that your brainstorm becomes another fluster storm or a force of will or whatever but if they take the brainstorm then that typically means that you're settling in for like a longer game yeah or or they have another discard spell to follow up and they know well, that they, they, they plan can plan on having another spell. one yeah right when they don't have it right right that minute they're they're going to play a longer game and have it because they actually will typically especially in game one they'll have more discard than you have counter spells right right so and especially if it's really soft stuff like days then they can just make their land drops and not worry about it there are some other situations where it's correct to just go ahead and fire off your brainstorm and sort of use it in emergency mode because the the perfect brainstorm usually happens after your draw step during your main phase where you're digging a card deeper and can can make your land drop after with a fetch land or you you know you have enough stuff to shuffle away so brainstorm is an instant is something that you really shouldn't be doing too often unless you're in these corner cases where you're responding to a discard spell or or you know you are going to be cooked unless you fire off this brainstorm like in response to chalices or if there's a thalia in play and your opponent is playing a game ending threat that you need to deal with the next turn like i can i can remember a match that i was playing against maverick where i was on the draw my opponent played a turn two thalia and I ended up with two mana in play when they took their turn three. And they played a Knight of the Reliquary. Now, obviously, that's a threat that I have to deal with. Because with Athalia in play, if I can't answer the Knight, they untap. And they already had a Wasteland in play. They can Knight up another, double Wasteland me, and I'm probably going to lose. So, it's correct to... Fire off a brainstorm with no shuffle effect if you know that you need to hit a specific card and you need to use your mana wisely or you're just going to lose that game. So there are times when your brainstorm becomes just an emergency button that you are slamming 
and those those times will be evident. Yeah. Yeah, and there's the obviousness of like if they're playing a chalice deck too, right? Right. Like I I can't remember if I said chalice before Thalia, but your oh, opponent yeah. your opponent plays a chalice on one, and you have a brainstorm in <laughs> hand. You're probably casting that brainstorm regardless because you can't after that. Right. So. Yeah, that that's a that's exactly right. You'll you'll know, right? I mean, it's it's a show and tell. It's it's a infernal tutor. It's you know a card like that that you absolutely have to counter if you can. So what else? There's there's uh, well, so much to yeah. playing this card. One of the things one of the things that makes brainstorm really special too is it's one of the very few cards in Magic where the original art is not the best art that's 100 percent false you take that back you oh fucking God. heathen you like the fucking chris rush chris rush art best oh, art so overrated i don't even know if it is overrated i feel like actually people prefer the masks one right people do prefer the masks one but those people are wrong and if if you have a set of signed rush brainstorms you play them in in every legacy event and when people are like oh that's the wrong art you just you stare at them and know that you're gonna beat them because they're a worse legacy player than you are don't you have yours altered to be like an x-man or something no my my force of wills are therese nielsen altered wolverines oh right they're fucking badass the the brainstorm that chris rush one just looks like an x-man though it looks like uh the old guy they they go well together Anyway, anyway, Ice Age art or bust. <clears throat> so yeah, specifically brainstorm and post sideboarded games. We talked about how you don't really want to cast your brainstorm until you know what you're trying to find, and in post sideboard games, you have those higher impact cards that you're looking for. To where again, holding your brainstorms until the latest moment a lot of the time makes a lot of sense yeah so that's another thing to think about we didn't even come close to to diving into all of the talk about brainstorm it's a beautiful card yeah and, and I'm, one of the already, reasons... I'm already thinking of like other scenarios now so no should... go for them we have we have time well so there's like the the potential of what your brainstorm could be that can terrify people, like especially against Reanimator, right? Let's say you have some number of Force Wills and Surgical Extractions in your deck, right? The fact that you have a Brainstorm, they'll be, let's say that they duress you and they, they take like a Fluster Storm or something, but you still have a Brainstorm. A lot of times they'll hit the brakes just because they don't want to end up going all in and then you spiking a Surgical off the top, right? And it's just like the... Uh, you know what could be the 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 other aspect of the brainstorm is just the opponent being being scared of it right anyway continue no i mean i'm not i'm not sure where else to go with it yeah i think either. we we talked we talked enough about it and if people have specific questions you can email the cast or hit us up in our discord and we'll talk more about it but for a newer or sort of early intermediate legacy player your ability to cast brainstorm at its maximum value 
is going to increase your win percentage drastically. So when you when you see a lot of these players who have very high win percentages in Legacy, if they're playing Delver, they're using their brainstorms extremely effectively. And watching streams or watching old coverage videos of people like Bob or Noah or whoever, Reed playing Grixis Control, you're you're going to be able to learn a lot about how they sequence their cantrips, when they cast their brainstorms, and in what situations they're sort of playing brainstorm out of its perfect use. All right? Yeah. We had an SCG. We had a team open, and we had the classic. And we're going to talk a little bit about both. But I think that there are some... There are some things that hold especially when we're talking about star cities and that is if you're playing legacy at a star city you are going to see a ton of delver <laughs> just period it doesn't matter how well positioned delver is it will be there in force that's that's sort of what we see in the team open right we see demir we saw fucking i can't say it blue black death shadow Take down the team yeah. event. Wait, how the fuck did I wind up on this one that has modern and legacy all together? Well, you should, if you clicked on the team, link, you should have now. everything. I got it. Yeah. And now I found a better link. Okay. So it was, it was blue, black, Delver, Grixis Delver, Grixis Delver, Depths. Which is like green, black, Delver, really. <laughs> yeah, just instead of making a 3-2 flyer, it makes a 2020 flyer. Yeah. Then Loam lands Eldrazi. We start to see that anti-Delver. Yep. And Miracles. So if we if we take a look at this top eight, it's fairly diverse, right? You see the Chalice anti-Delver decks in loam eldrazi and lands you see a control deck and you see you see a collection of delver decks you see one source of pleasure's deck in the top 16 so i can see how death shadow ends up in first the the blue white delver deck the one that i played in richmond and owen wrote a few articles about is it's natural predators we talked. I talked quite a bit about it on earlier casts about how the Grixis control matchup and the Miracles matchup are just not really where you want to be with that deck. We're not. We're not seeing a huge percentage of these paper events being Grixis control and Miracles, for whatever reason. And maybe it's because Star City is always overrepresentative of Delver. Maybe it's because those control decks over a longer tournament are harder to play but i i feel like that blue white delver deck has much stronger chalice match chalice matchups than some of the other delver decks and i wouldn't be surprised if it sees a resurgence yeah i think i i agree with you i 
if not for the card chalice, for the card Blood Moon, actually, and for the fact that Eldrazi is weak to equipment. So it's not like it's actually stronger, in my opinion, against the card chalice, but it's better against the decks that play chalice, in my opinion. Well, it, it also has better threats up, up the curve, right? Like, it has as many one-drops as the other Delver decks, but Stoneforge Mystic and True Name Nemesis and Jace allow you to have those games that happen once in a while where your opponent keeps a a hand very heavily based on their chalice on one and even though you have interaction you can let it resolve because you have your two mana play and three mana play available to you so uh that that is important when we're in a world where we're seeing almost 30 percent chalice somewhere between 25 and 30 I think you really can only do that with Stoneforge, though, right? Right, which is which is why specifically mentioning that blue white shell. Yeah, that's that's one of the things that you can do. Yeah. Okay, cool. so team event kind of Delver show for whatever reason. Does Grixis Phoenix? Uh, somebody, I believe it was our friend Adam mentioned in the discord that tommy ashton went x1 personally with this phoenix deck yes and this is a slight variant on white faces grixis phoenix deck this has tomb stalker in the main deck and is playing lotus petal but not playing that beast of a volcanic island scrubland mentor phoenix deck it basically kept most of the spell base from that deck and took out the mentors for tomb stalkers and young pyromancers which solidifies the mana base and gives you a better plan b phoenix phoenix is for real yeah what is do you know tommy ashton's name on magic online no i think i might have played against him friday night i was playing this bug deck with i had uh i put leyline of the void in the sideboard and I was playing against, I, I believe, this exact same 75. And I had a ley line off the bat in game uh, game two, actually. And he ended up hard casting Tombstalker, which I never thought was a possibility. And I actually let him get there with uh, Assassin's Trophies because I just didn't think he was going to be able to pull another basic out. And he had all his lands in play and hard cast a Tombstalker with, uh, with no graveyard, you know. <laughs> Which I didn't think that any of these decks would actually have eight actual lands in them. Kind of blew my mind. Yeah. Uh, apparently, apparently they do. They have exactly eight. Yep. That's good deck building. <laughs> it's just good deck building. But yeah, I saw that. Uh, what's his name? Put uh, Callum put uh, Dark Confidence into his main deck this week, right? And he came in second in the challenge, I believe. So I I was unable to find the challenge lists before the cast. Yeah, I so just saw maybe a tweet. maybe they he maybe he posted about it on Twitter, but I didn't see it. I, so. Yeah, I feel like I saw a tweet. I, th- I think it was him that he said he played three uh, Bob's main. I can I can see how that deck can make very good use of Dark Confidant. All right, another thing I wanted to talk about in the team open was in seventh place. 
We actually saw an Eldrazi Stompy list that had a Spyglass in the main deck. And I remember having our conversation where we were doing the blind, put your opponent, or not blind, but put your opponent on their deck. And it was Ancient Tomb Spyglass. And we automatically sort of discounted Eldrazi Stompy. And this is a deck that has Mimic and Endless Ones and a Spyglass in the main. Which one is this, 16? Uh, number seven. Oh, seven. I'm sorry. Yep. So I, I felt like it was important to point that out to where if you were playing in some tournaments coming up, maybe that list gets copied and you're more likely to see a Spyglass and Stompy now. So when you play this deck, you played uh, more Thorn of Amethyst in the main, right? No, I I played them in the sideboard, but I talked about how after that event, I would have loved to have the main, and they were they were as effective as Chalice for me. Right. So, is one thorn like normal? Is this? Well, zero thorns is normal, but going to one sort of pushes the deck a little bit closer to what you see at a Steel Stompy with them trying to go <clears throat> more all in on the taxing effects, and I could, I could definitely see. An Eldrazi Stompy list that is playing Thorn and Chalice and having that be correct. Right? If you're living in a blue cantrip-based world, why not? Yeah, I'm trying to figure out what, what this deck cut. So I guess it cut like a fourth Spirit Guide, a third Ballista, maybe? Well, okay, so most of the Eldrazi Stompy decks played three Spirit Guide. This deck, it seems like, cut two Ballista for the thorn and the spyglass is one jit normal or two well it's either one or two but usually the dismember and the jit switch so in the standard builds that i was seeing before there were four ballista two jit one dismember and this deck looked like it dropped two ballista for the spyglass and the thorn and then went from one two jits to one and one dismember to two yeah so that's kind of the the way that this deck transitioned also this deck has one waste main deck and is only playing two caverns and i i haven't i haven't seen an eldrazi stompy deck only play two caverns so it looks like they they wanted that waste for sure and they they cut a cavern for it that seems crazy to me bro uh me too i i feel like if you want that waste you're cutting something like the factory. Um, I, okay. I feel like you want as many caverns as you can get. I like playing two City of Traders. I feel like three with this deck. I, I just don't want to clog on them because you do need to get up the curve, right? I mean, to a point. Like, if you if you have two other land, a city is beautiful. Right, one city is, is amazing, but... Once you hit two cities, it's it's pretty much always going to be the best you can hope for is either you sort of cheat out, quote unquote, cheat out like a an endbringer, or you just pump an extra counter into a ballista. Right? right, but I mean, after after you hit five mana or four mana, there are really only two cards you care about in the entire deck. So 
you want as many soul lands as you can get early to to go up the curve quickly for sure i i definitely don't like four city of traders but the correct number is probably somewhere between two and three and um when i when i take a look at this mana base i i don't think of the cities as the reason why they're not running more cavern so is it is it that they would usually have 25 lands maybe yes i've definitely seen 24 land builds though because huh. it does look weird to me too and i can't figure out exactly why okay i, I just wanted to touch on the spyglass in that deck cool all right so classic look at adam wallace's list first oh yeah we had adam wallace finish in 15th with elves triple natural order savannah main deck for that gag teague is he playing archon of valor's reach uh i don't see it no but okay. he he is playing entourage of trust you know what that does right is that the the five drop monarch card yeah. from yeah. green? Yeah, yeah. I had seen that in a few lists, and I had to look it up. And I was like, "All right, I guess anything that gives the monarch effect is pretty powerful in certain matchups." And that's why, uh, what is what is the land? It's something of Pollyano. Th no, th Throne of the High City or something. Like that. Throne of the High, whatever it is. Uh, yeah. I I feel like I feel like that could see play in certain decks too. Oh yeah, I've seen that a few times now. Not as much as I would have liked to have seen it, but... So the classic... Got one by your deck. Very, very close to the exact list that I played in Richmond. Uh, I definitely had four days. And I definitely had three true name. But the rest of the deck is almost card for card. So what is he playing? I don't believe I had a Council's Judgment main deck. Right. Did you have two Jace's main or just one? I had two Jace's main deck. Okay. Three true names. I can't remember the number of Snapcasters that I had in the main deck. It might have been it might have been two, it might have been lower. But this is almost the same deck. Yep. He has a true name in the sideboard. So I guess the council's judgment ended up in the main deck for that true name. And I may have actually played 19 lands in the fourth days. I think that, that sounds correct. My deck list is published somewhere. Actually, wait, it's on the wizard's website. I played four Wasteland with 20 land. Three. Yeah, I didn't I didn't play the Council's Judgment. I only played one Jace. Those were the changes. So there you go. Yeah, anyway, uh, Blue Black Shadow. Doing it again. And third place. Man, this is this is crazy. So when I when I saw this, I was like, okay, wait. 
and I had to back out and see how many people were actually played in this event. But it was 141, so this is legitimate. What the fuck? They call it Blue Black Delver, which is a travesty? Uh, what's the name? Abomination, maybe? Yeah, I mean, it's... It's something, right? Like, you're... I... Man, I don't know. Do you remember what we were talking about, like, with that blue, mono blue popper deck? Like, what's the non-budget best version of that? Yeah. Could it be this? Well, okay, so when I saw... When I saw this, I thought, alright, this is a great use of Stitcher's supplier where that was that was definitely the the best use of that card that I had seen right because you get multiple coming into play triggers you get a one drop that provides a little bit of value to you that you can ninjutsu onto the next turn and I feel like the decks that we had seen that have done similar things to this before didn't have Stitcher Supplier, so that was the kind of breakthrough for, for that deck. It's kind of weird, though, when you're in blue and black, because you don't have a, something like a Lingering Souls or like a Punishing Fire. Like Once something winds up in your graveyard, the only way that it's going to benefit you is casting Grimag Angler, right? And giving you extra information about what your draw steps could be. Also, you have consigned to Oblivion to where you might end up getting some value with that card in your graveyard. Unlikely with 17 lands, but non-zero. You'd have to, yeah, have almost every source in there. But, but again, you played, against, you played against a deck that had eight mana sources and you had Tombstalker cast against you. Yeah, but they weren't just binning three random cards off the top multiple times in a row, so... Okay. I feel like the, if this deck, and that's probably why they're playing four underground C, right? Because you always <laughs> want to make sure that you're able to fetch one? Yep. Right, right. But having a one drop that functions as a value creature that your opponent definitely doesn't want to waste a removal spell on. Allows it's pretty you, sweet, yeah. Yeah, allows you to ninjutsu onto it harder. And I guess if you're going in that direction... You you might want to play more ninjutsu cards. Well, why isn't there no snapcasters? Well, I don't get really. So let's let's actually look at the snapcaster targets, right? There's two fatal push, four ponder, a thought seize, and four brainstorm. And I guess the dismember too, but snapcaster days doesn't work. Snapcaster forcible doesn't work. Snapcaster unmasked doesn't work. So you're only talking about 5, 8, you're talking about 12 targets for your Snapcaster Mage, and... In the main deck, yeah. The, yeah, the, the sideboard is a lot of, a lot of, like, one-mana counterspells and stuff like that, but... Three Surgicals, Flusterstorm, Surgery, Edict, Him, Thoughtseize, Casualties, so... So, basically... It, I would think that you'd play Snapcaster as like your fifth Strix, right? Because when you're attacking with the Tiger Shadow thing, 
or when you're ninjutsuing it in. First of all, it's kind of weird to have four of them, right? Because they're legendary. But anyway, you ninjutsu it in and you sort of balance something back to your hand. If you're not balancing the Strix back to your hand, you're balancing the Supplier, I guess, which is... Which is the reason why they're there. Right. But I mean, I, I feel like if I were to try this deck, I would, I would start with one Snapcaster just to see how it was. Yeah, and again, you can you can just play this out. What's that? It's you can you can just hard cast it. Like it's a three mana play, right? And obviously obviously it's not optimal, but it's a card advantage engine if you can get it going. Yeah. And if your opponent's removal spells get pointed at your Baleful Strixes and Delvers and Stitcher Suppliers, then this is a fine follow up play to that. I'm trying to look at the uh, the top eight and imagine this person we're playing against. Well, I mean, we can look in the Star City website for the bracket, but it's a challenge. It only had a right. hundred and something players. Like, it's whatever. Yeah. It's interesting right. to me. Man. Anything, anything else other than the return of Michael Braverman in top eight? Yeah, Michael Braverman, good dude. I saw him actually when we were talking about this Elo shit last week, you know? Yeah. I was looking at, because you were talking about how it was going to be like the end of that spreadsheet being updated. And I decided to just like start scrolling down and see who the highest rated person that I knew was. And Braverman was pretty fucking high up there, man. Yeah, I'm not anymore. Bro, I got knocked below 1700 Bro, I, I got fucking crushed by this last two events that we went on to. I went 03 at the last one and 03 at the one before that. I'm at like 1490 or something. No. Yes. That's I, bad. I'm as low as, as you could possibly be, I think. That's, yep, yeah, you're low. My, my, my moto rating is fucking through the roof. In limited? Yeah. Yeah. Black Lotus, pack one, pick one. Yeah, uh, dude, you were just talking about how mana advantage is is a good thing. Yeah, Black I Lotus. Have... Black Lotus gives you a pretty good mana advantage. No, it doesn't. Not like a soul ring. Jesus Christ. Yeah, make your super powerful turn one play in a really bursty format with your soul ring. Bro, I anyway, feel like... anyway, anyway, we got more shit to talk about. We're, we're gonna have to create a poll somewhere for this okay anyway yeah, tell me tell me i'm wrong uh but we talked we talked about a lot today yeah this is this has been one of the longest boringest episodes i feel like we've ever done no shut the fuck up you don't sell us short there are all these people that are going to listen to it and they'll be like oh man the dead format is doing weekly weekly content it's fire every week so there's there's one 5-0 deck i want to talk about Oh yeah, the fucking league. Yo, Shit. I'm gonna okay. So listen, we're gonna do this live. I want you to scroll through the decks. Oh goddamn! And stop when you think you get to the one that I want to talk about. Let's control F. Oh, uh, no Lavinia. So let's see. I told you to scroll, motherfucker. <laughs> No Lavinia, though, so 
This is not looking good for our girl. Uh, let's see. I know it's not Benthic Biomancer, but we did talk about that card. And I do agree it's a pretty sweet card that I didn't even think about. Alright, this is just chalk, 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 chalk. Chalk, 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 I know it's not going to be the Buried Alive deck, because we've already talked about that. Oh, motherfucker! Yeah! Sorry, that wasn't related to this. This is something else. You didn't get there yet? I'm like halfway down. Oh, here we go. Got it. Eric Landon? Yep, that's the one. What is this? Four nobles and two birds. All right. Beautiful. Fucking A, man. Look at this. I like it. So a 2-1 split on Ramanop Tireless Tracker. That's actually where I ended up when I was playing Maverick. So I can totally understand how you get there. Three Stoneforge, two equipment. That's something that I think we've both talked about quite a bit. This looks awesome, man. This looks look great to me. Just brought me, it brought me back to the days where I felt like I was on top of Legacy and I just couldn't lose. <laughs> Dude, Tireless Tracker is such a fucking beast. I mean, if you're playing in the matchups where you can grind it out. Yeah. Right? Like, Tireless Tracker in quite a few matchups in Legacy now is just, it's a brick. In the fair matchups, that card can do some work. It's so. a brick, but I'm drowning slowly, bro. <laughs> All right. Anything else you want to talk about this week? Uh, nah. Okay. If you really liked what you heard tonight, you can hit us up at patreon.com slash the dead format. You can give us a very little amount of money and it will feed our egos so we will be more reckless with what we leave in the cast. That's a big that's a big mood right there. If yeah. you if you want to get in touch with Ian and tell him that he really needs to loosen up and start to start to say a little bit more on the cast, where can they get in touch with you? Uh at spikefeedmtg on Twitter. Oof. No, you know what? You know how we deal with haters? We love, we love I lo them. I love Spike Feet. I listen to that podcast all the time. Didn't they shit all over us? Uh, yes, absolutely. All right. All right, you can find me at T-SmileyMTG. Yo soy Fiesta.